Well, dear friends, our text this morning as we hear from the living God and His Word is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 to chapter 12, verse 3. It will be helpful as usual if you have your Bibles open to that passage as we begin. The main point of our text this morning is the command found in the final part of Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let us run, the pastor says. Following on the many examples of faith found in the men and women we have studied from Israel's history through chapter 11, this is the key exhortation the pastor now gives his hearers. Run. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Everything else in this remarkable passage supports that command. And so in the sermon this morning, this is how we'll approach it. First, we'll consider the command itself to run the race there in the end of chapter 12, verse 1. What is that race, and what kind of running are we talking about here? Second, we'll consider the necessary preparations to run the race. Found in the middle of chapter 12, verse 1, there the pastor writes, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What are these weights and the sin the pastor has in view? Why do they need to be laid aside to run well? And then third, we'll briefly consider the motivations to run the race that fill, I think, the rest of the passage as the pastor focuses on two things, the great cloud of witnesses and then climactically on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So that means we have the running of the race, preparations to run the race, and then motivations to run the race. And hopefully the passage holds together in your mind and in your heart in that way as we go. To begin then, we take up what I've already said is the central command and the main point of this text found in the final part of chapter 12, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I know that it's probably obvious, but I want to spend time on it anyway. What the pastor is talking about here when he tells us to run the race is our life of faith. That's what the race is. It's the rest of our lives, brothers and sisters. As he turns the corner here into chapter 12 of Hebrews, the pastor has transformed the pilgrimage lived by faith with its many examples in chapter 11 into a race run with endurance. Only to properly interpret the athletic imagery and the metaphor of a race that the pastor employs here requires that we be careful not to misconstrue it. Every metaphor has its limitations, 
and this one is no different. The pastor does not use the metaphor of a race to suggest that every aspect of what that metaphor could entail is applicable here. For example, the point of this race obviously isn't that we're in competition with others to see who can get to the finish line first. There's no hint at all that the race belongs to the strong or that we should try to break out of the pack as we run in order to win it or anything along those lines because this isn't a competitive race. Rather, in this race, all those who by faith endure to the end of it will win, which means that the key to successfully running this race isn't intense speed such that you can beat a record or overcome the competition. No, the key to success in this race is endurance. The language of the race set before us was a fixed classical expression for describing an athletic contest. But here the pastor adopts that phrase for his own purposes to emphasize that the life lived in obedience by faith has been set before us by God himself. And though we need to and are meant to support one another along the way, the point here isn't that we all run the same race. The race set before us by God will look different for different people. The course for each runner is unique. We will each have places we are to go, things we are to do, challenges we are to confront. Some of our courses may be relatively straight, others mostly turns. Some may seem all uphill, others along a flat path. All of them are long, some of them longer than others. The call is to run with endurance the race set before us wherever it leads. We don't need to know that. What we do need to know is that each of us can finish that race if we attend to the preparations and keep in view the motivations to run it that we'll talk about in a few minutes. The key isn't what the race looks like. It's in the endurance we have in running it. Our perseverance in various settings where God will place us, holding fast to our convictions and our obedience to God in different settings and different seasons of life, to grow in grace and glorify God through faith all the way to the end of our lives. This is victory, brothers and sisters, not attaining to worldly standards of success, but enduring in faith to the end. That's not exactly a new theme for us in Hebrews. In fact, this is a return to where the pastor was focused before he started into the examples of faith in chapter 11. Better, it's why the pastor went into the examples of faith in chapter 11. If you've been with us in this Hebrews series over time, you've heard me quote chapter 10, verse 36 quite often. 
but here it is again. As we think about how the pastor here now resumes the point he was making there in that passage in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 36, for you have need of endurance, he says, so that when you have done the will of God, when you've finished the race set before you, when your life of faith has come to an end, then you may receive what is promised. The whole point is that the pastor wants his hearers to run the race all the way to the end. And that means it doesn't matter how fast you are or how you look compared to your brother or sister along the way. The point is that you keep running and that you run the whole thing. The point is that you reach the end. And that when you get there, you're able to say what the Apostle Paul did when he neared the finish line in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Paul says there, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Hear it? What does that mean? I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's no doubt that we can finish the race set before us, dear friends. Not because it's easy. It's not. The pastor tells us we have to run, after all, not stroll or meander, or wander about aimlessly, takes effort. The way is hard. Direction and discipline and effort are required, to be sure. But the point here is that rather than going off to run like crazy, we need to run with endurance. Listen to how one commentator describes what endurance entails. It is, he writes, quote, that determination, unhasting and unresting, unhurrying and yet undelaying, which goes steadily on and which refuses to be defeated. Obstacles will not daunt it. Delays will not depress it. Discouragements will not take its hope away. It will halt neither for discouragement from within nor for opposition from without. End quote. As I've thought about it, the word that comes to mind in connection with endurance is patience. To the church at Thyatira, Jesus says in Revelation 2 verse 19, I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance. That's what we need, brothers and sisters, because this race is a long haul. It's not for sprinters who flame out after 100 or 200 or 400 meters. Some of us know Christians who were keen and eager in their early days of faith, but who it seems simply ran out of steam over time. It does not work that way. Do not be impressed by frenetic activity. 
or the breathless pace that someone else seems to set as they get involved in every possible ministry they can think of. That's not what we're after here. God wants us to run to the end, not into the ground. What we're after is endurance. Perseverance in a life of obedience through reliance upon God's promises and power. It's the life of faith. And we run to win because we recognize that in the end, life comes down to faith. And so we turn next to the preparations necessary to run the race. Because if the key to this race is patient endurance in obedience over time, then what preparations are critical to run that way? Well, here we're focused on the middle of chapter 12, verse 1, where in the ESV it says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. In the NIV, this, this part of the verse says, Let us throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles. Together, I think those two translations capture what the pastor's saying here. The potentially confusing thing in the English is that it looks as though we have two commandments here, right? It looks like, first, the pastor says to lay aside every weight and sin, and then secondly, to run with endurance the race set before us, and that's not wrong. It's not wrong to translate it that way. The first verb does take on the force of a command, but what's not brought out as clearly as it might be is that the laying aside of every weight and sin is directly connected to the command to run. It doesn't sound as good in English, but we could translate this, laying aside every weight and sin let us run. The point is that we are to lay aside this weight and sin so that we can run with endurance as the pastor urges us to do. So what's the pastor talking about here? Again, he's using terminology that has specific application within the athletic context. Ancient writers could use the word here translated as weight to mean mass or heaviness or even bodily fat. And in the context of athletics, the word could refer to a runner, for example, losing excess weight or removing clothes in preparation for the impending contest. You may know that in ancient Greece, competitors in athletic games would typically compete wearing no clothes at all. The point being that for success, one was to be rid of anything that would hinder efficient running. The verb translated to lay aside in the ESV can be rendered to get rid of or, as the NIV has it, to throw off probably there conceiving of the clothing that would be removed before the contest began. The point is not that the pastor has a specific weight in view, 
but that he wants his hearers to dispense with absolutely anything that will distract them from successfully running the race of faith. And so, of course, that includes sin. But it doesn't seem to be limited to sin here. Since in chapter 12, verse 1, the pastor separates, as I read it, every weight from sin which clings so closely. And the NIV maybe brings that out a little more clearly, where it says we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, certainly sin itself, in whatever form we find it in our lives, and the pastor doesn't, again, have any particular sin in view here. He refers to sin as a category. Whatever sin is in our lives, without question, it must be thrown off. For such sin clings closely, the text says. Instead of clings closely, you could translate it easily entangles or ensnares. The idea seems to be, though this is the only time this word occurs in the New Testament, the idea seems to be that sin is what trips us up when we try to run. I think it's more serious than the weights that the pastor mentions. Weights or hindrances weigh us down, but sin, sin entangles our feet possibly bringing us down to the ground. We can't run when our legs are tangled up in something. All of which is to say, of course, that we take sin lightly in our lives at our great peril, brothers and sisters. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, the pastor described sin as deceitful, able to harden our very hearts, in this context, sin is what can trip us up and pull us off the path altogether. To run with endurance requires that we confess and turn from sin in our lives. But what I want to also emphasize this morning is that it isn't just the sin in our lives that we need to throw off in order to run with endurance. It's also every weight. And while there's some debate, as to what the difference is here between every weight and sin, I go with the interpreters who understand that the weights here can refer to anything that hinders our faithful obedience. Such things will not be the same for everyone, and they are not necessarily sinful things themselves, though for some they may have opened the door to sin in our lives. The point is, they're hindrances. Not only must we lay aside entangling sin in our lives, we must lay aside every weight. That means anything that weighs us down, anything that hinders our spiritual progress, those things should be discarded too. Perhaps it involves aspects of our lifestyle, including how we engage with entertainment in our daily lives, what we read, what we watch, how much we watch. Perhaps it involves career ambitions, hobbies, associations, and even friendships sometimes, habits and preoccupations that we have, patterns of eating and drinking. 
The point is that any of those things and others besides them may or may not be a problem. What the hindrances are will vary from person to person, but each of us should look at the things in our lives and ask, is this a help or is it a hindrance? And if it's a hindrance, the wise believer will let the hindrance go, dear friends. Not wanting to be weighted down in the race. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 verse 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The race of the Christian life isn't run well only by asking, what's wrong with this or that? But by asking, is this thing, whatever it is, is this thing in the way? Is it hindering in my life greater faith or greater love or greater humility or patience or self-control? Is this thing encouraging the fruits of the Spirit or is it working against them? Does that make sense? It's not just, is it sin? It's also, does it hinder me? And if the answer is yes, then pastor's telling us to make a plan for how you'll lay it aside. That might be a gradual process depending on what's involved. It might be more immediate, but make a plan. In fact, we're in week four of five in Lent now. So it may be that there's not time before Holy Week to do this, but it doesn't matter. You could do it after Easter if you wanted to at some point. But why not find a day or a half day and spend it listing out two things? First, list the sins you can identify in your life. What is it that's threatening to entangle you right now? Is it jealousy or dishonesty or anger? or sensuality, gluttony, covetousness, pride. It may be you've already confessed these things. It may be that they keep recurring, or it may be that there are things you haven't confessed yet because you've been hiding them from yourself or others. Write them down. Pray for forgiveness. Ask for help by the Spirit's power to root them out of your life. It might not be something that happens overnight. But identifying sin and praying over it is a crucial first step. It's a preparatory step. But don't stop there. Write down also the weights, the hindrances. Again, these are not things that are necessarily sinful in themselves. Some could be just fine, but you know that in your life they're hindrances. They weigh you down spiritually. It may be that they're connected in some way to some of the sins you've already listed when you stop to think about it. Name them too, along with the ways you tend to make provision for those things in your life. That might be a friendship. It might be an event or a place or a habit or a pleasure that you enjoy or an entertainment or even some kind of honor. 
But get these things down and then begin to pray through what steps you can take to lay these things aside because this is what the pastor says we must do. If we are to finish well in faith, we must strip our souls of every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. What I think the pastor is describing here is a conscious, systematic divestment of sins and hindrances in our lives. And it's something that has to be regularly performed, doesn't it? Because this is necessary preparation. One author puts it this way. He says, quote, This faith is the runner who breaks down every phase of the race from start to finish, crafting a stride and step and training every fiber of the body to move in precisely the correct way until it is instinct and reflex. It is in this way that the competitor strips away the sin of life and everything that slows, distracts, discourages, or potentially disqualifies in the singular pursuit of the way of Jesus. And the only other thing I'd say is that we don't have to do this all on our own. Part of successfully laying aside these things is to not Keep them all just to ourselves. Share what you can with your small group. Get them praying for you. Find someone you trust and ask them to help by checking in with you and supporting you. Do what Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we're going to run with endurance the race set before us, dear friends, we have to make such preparations. And then finally, we need to focus on the motivations that the pastor gives us for running this race. There are two of them in our passage, both of which could be and perhaps maybe should be the focus of an entire sermon of their own, but which we'll have to deal with rather quickly. First, in chapter 11, verse 39, to the first part of chapter 12, verse 1, the pastor would motivate us in the running of this race by having us remember the many witnesses that have gone before us. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1 begins, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, lay aside every weight and sin and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Who are the witnesses that make up this vast group, this great cloud? The, the cloud was a common metaphor in the ancient world for a crowd. <laughs> well, clearly, they're the faithful ones who've gone before us including all the explicit examples the pastor mentioned in chapter 11, verses 4 to 31, and all the men and women he alluded to in the passage we considered last week in chapter, four verses, uh, chapter 11, excuse me, verses 32 to 38. They're all witnesses, the text says. That probably means both that they're witnesses to the pastor's hearers and to us, and that, in some sense, they're witnesses of the pastor's hearers and of us. 
What are they witnesses to? What are they telling us, if you will? Well, as chapter 11 has shown, these faithful ones of old are witnesses to us of the power and faithfulness of God. That is to say, their lives of faith that we studied over so many weeks clearly demonstrate the reality of God's promises and give evidence of God's power to deliver his people. We saw it again and again and again. And it's a point that was made at the start, I think, back in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, where it says of Abel, who is the first example that the pastor mentions, that through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So it is for all who followed him. They are witnesses to us. But I can't ignore that in keeping with the athletic imagery of this passage, probably the great cloud of witnesses here are also in some sense to be understood as witnesses of God's contemporary people as well. It's as if these heroes of old are in the stands watching as the pastor's hearers are running their race by faith. They're like spectators, or probably better, they're like devoted fans. Without getting too literal about it, I think the pastor would have his hearers endure in their race by imagining the eyes of these great heroes of faith cheering them on. I think part of the point is that we're supposed to pay attention to their testimony and heed the encouragement they give us. I mean, there's Abel reminding us of the nature of the sacrifice that pleases the Lord. And out cries Noah that while the world is condemned, there's an ark of salvation. And Abraham cheers for all who hope for the promises yet unfulfilled just the way he did for so many years in Canaan. And Moses shouts out to those who, like him, must forfeit their status and favor in the world in order to follow the Lord. I mean, these witnesses are the saints who've run the race before us and who now have gathered, as it were, along the marathon route, or maybe better, at the finish line, to say through the testimony of their lives, by faith I finished, you can too. Keep it up. Don't stop now. And I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but part of the reason we can imagine them cheering us on is because in some sense they really are waiting for us to get to the finish line. We cannot unpack together everything going on in verses 39 and 40 of Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, but they're fascinating verses. Look at them again. And all these, the pastor writes, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The way I read verses 39 and 40 is that the saints of the old covenant are in some sense waiting for the saints of the new. They're waiting 
for the original hearers of Hebrews and for us today and for all people of faith until the Lord Jesus returns. Why? Because it's only when the entire household of God is brought together in the end that we're all made perfect, as it says in the end of verse 40. I think the pastor refers here to that eschatological perfection when the promise is fully realized, when they and we together will be resurrected with new bodies in a new age, in a new heavens and new earth. As I read it, the pastor's point is that we all come into the fullness of our inheritance together. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of the something better God has now provided. And there can be no question as to what that something is. It's the better hope of Hebrews 7 verse 19. That's brought about by the better covenant of Hebrews 7 verse 22. That's built on the better sacrifice of Hebrews 9 verse 23. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ that gives us access to the better heavenly country of Hebrews 11 verse 16 through the better resurrection of Hebrews 11 verse 35. It is, in other words, as I read it, everything that makes salvation possible, theirs and ours, life with God in a place. That's the end goal for us, just as it was also for the saints of old, and we'll all experience it together. And it's all because of Jesus. Which is why if the first motivation to run the race with endurance comes from the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, then the second and indeed far greater motivation is Jesus himself. We'll take only a passing glance at Hebrews 12 verses 2 and 3, but as we do so, recognizing that we stand now on the edge of four weeks of focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and his passion and resurrection. Here in chapter 12 verses 2 and 3, we're reminded that the only way we'll keep running to the end is if our gaze is fixed not fixed on the cloud of witnesses, as encouraging and motivational as they are, but fixed on Jesus. Let us run, the pastor exhorts us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us run looking to Jesus. Why? Well, I think if we boil it all down, it's because of this. It's because where he's gone is where we're going brothers and sisters. And he's the one who makes it possible for us to get there. Verse 2 of chapter 12 is sort of like a summary of the entire argument of Hebrews. 
It's no coincidence that here the pastor uses the same term for founder as he did so very long ago in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. There, in Hebrews chapter 2, the pastor referred to Jesus, He for whom and by whom all things exist. He who brings many sons to glory. There the pastor refers to Jesus as the founder of our salvation. The Greek word was archegos. It meant, as we said, not just founder, but pioneer. The pastor would remind us that Jesus is the one who has gone before his brothers and sisters to the eternal inheritance. As the pioneer of his people's salvation, Christ opened the way for our ultimate entrance into the presence of God. How? Well, by becoming our all-sufficient high priest who's able to cleanse us from our sin. This, the pastor reminds us, he did through his obedient self-offering on the cross with all of the suffering that entailed. And so now, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the work is finished. Jesus Christ has both initiated and completed, pioneered and perfected the way for us to go to God. There, the joy he anticipated will also be ours as we ourselves go to the place where he is. And dear friends, whatever may come as we run this race, what could be greater motivation than that? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.